scripture says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have been all baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yet the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I do not need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts that God has appointed for the church. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, then those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all prophets? Are we all, I'm sorry, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. Thank you for saying good morning. All right, so my name is Kaylee Meza. I'm the youth ministries director here. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. We are very glad uh, to have you with us. Just get settled here. All right, um, so just to bring us all up to speed, uh, if you are uh, new or if this is your first time joining us, uh, we have been making our way through a sermon series uh, titled We Are Family, uh, and in it we've been spending some time, we've been spending a couple of weeks looking at just what it means for us as the church to be a spiritual family, right? or that is, uh, what does it mean for us at King's Church to be uh, God's family together, right? Uh, And this morning, we are actually going to be concluding that series. And so for those of us at King's Church who have been largely present throughout this series, uh, our hope is that by now, we're all beginning to look at our position here in the church a little bit differently, right? I hope that we're all beginning to realize uh, with more and more clarity 
just what it means to be the household of God, right? That we all together are realizing uh, that when God blesses us and commands us to be a part of a local assembly, he is calling us to involve ourselves in something that requires more than just our simple attendance, right? Right, as we've been discussing, uh, to be in a family, right, there is a commitment, right? The commitment of family goes much deeper than uh, that. It involves your time. It involves your resources. It involves your mental and emotional and spiritual energy, right? Last week, we looked at forgiveness. The week before that, we looked at conflict. It involves uh, the giving of yourself and of your uh, person, right? Uh, Even if Right? That requires yourself, even if there may be seasons where you feel like you're giving more than you're getting. Right? There might be seasons where you feel like you're giving, uh, but what you're giving is not really being reciprocated. Right? Consumerism has no part in the church. And yet, at the same time, uh, God is also bestowing on us the grace of a life well spent uh, with his people, right? With whom all his promises have been made, right? That is the church, right? The people uh, with whom we are the daily recipients of his grace uh, and the only institution that is going to survive the ages. That is what God has welcomed us into. Okay, and so I hope that uh, for all of us, right, we've gotten wind of that to some uh, degree, right, that that's what it means to be a a part of a church, and that's what it means for the church to be a family, and specifically that's what it means for us at King's Church to be a family, right? So I I hope we've all uh, gotten wind of that. If we haven't, this is going to be our last shot, right? So uh, if, right, and then after that, we're going to talk about something else. So If you haven't gotten that, you can go back online. You can listen to the whole series uh, and see what it means to actually be a family as a church together. All right, so uh, as Stephen read, we are in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. So let's just jump right into the text. Um, Let's get the lay of the land here. Uh, So what is Paul talking about here? All right, well, so broadly, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a corrective letter, right? Meaning he is writing to them. He's writing to the church in Corinth to set things straight. And there are a tremendous gamut of issues that Paul is addressing, right? If we were to go back and look through the letter, we can see, I believe uh, one commentator said there were 11 different issues that Paul addresses in the church of Corinth uh, within this first letter. But in our passage specifically this morning, Paul is speaking uh, to some issues concerning the spiritual gifts and particularly the gift of tongues, right? Uh, When we read from chapter 12 up through 14, we can begin to see uh, that here, uh, excuse me, that there was really uh, some abuses that were going on uh, concerning that gift, right? There was a sort of hierarchical culture uh, that was stemming from uh, that gift and the misuse of that gift. Um, So now just to give a quick preface, uh, with that being said, this morning we're not necessarily going to be talking about spiritual uh, gifts that much. This is not going to be an expansive study on the gift of tongues, so I'm sorry to disappoint uh, any of you. Uh, I just want to get that out there. We're not going to be talking about the nature of the gifts, right? We're not going to be talking uh, about the different types or even how to figure out which spiritual gifts uh, you might have, right? That might be a good connect hour uh, topic or study for a different time. Uh, but we're not necessarily going to be talking about the spiritual gifts in that 
sense, uh, but we will more so be talking about the individual whom God has gifted. Okay, we're going to be talking about the individual who has received these gift, gifts and what Paul wants us to know about the individual themselves and the church before a word is even spoken about gifts, okay? And the reason for that uh, is because Paul seems to be quite privy to the fact uh, that whatever the gift, right, whatever the gift, whether spiritual or natural, we can be prone to the misuse or abuse of our gifts, uh, and that that abuse does not necessarily stem from a misunderstanding about the gift, but that abuse stems from a misunderstanding about ourselves uh, and about who we are in the church. Okay, right, so let's take uh, the example of finances, right, the gift of finances. You might have been blessed with the gift of finances, right, you've earned your money, right, but it's also a blessing, so you might have the gift of finances, but you might not feel uh, that it is necessary for you to give, whether that be to the church or whether that be to anyone else, right? You might feel that that gift is yours. And so if you feel that way, that feeling does not necessarily stem from a misunderstanding about money and how money works. That misunderstanding comes from um, perhaps a misunderstanding of how money relates to you, Right? Or maybe your position within the church, or maybe how you relate to others and how God has designed you to be a giver and a good steward of your gifts. All right, and so uh, as we're talking about the church and family, we all ought to be asking ourselves uh, how do I orient myself within my family? Right? Who am I in the context of the church? Do I have a role? Do I have a purpose? How can I? be useful, right? These are all good questions to be asking, right? That we should be asking ourselves regularly of the answers, right? It's not by any means to invoke this sort of like existential crisis, uh, right? Like who, who am I like in the church, right? Uh, culture has plenty of that going on. We don't need to bring uh, that mess in here by any means. No, but Paul wants you uh, to be profoundly without a shadow of a doubt, sure of who you are, and most specifically, who you are in the context of the church. Okay, so what does Paul want us to know? All right, well, I believe uh, from this passage, uh, we can note four things that Paul wants, uh, excuse me, that Paul and ultimately Christ wants us really to know and to be assured of when it comes to to, our, uh, to us individually, uh, and when it comes to us individually within the larger corporate body that is the church, okay? And these four things are going to outline uh, our time this morning, right? And so we can say that Paul wants us to be assured of, or Paul wants you to be assured of, your unity in Christ, your identity in Christ, your diversity within the church, and your heart for the body, all right, so uh, let's talk about unity. Okay, so starting back in verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All right, so starting right here in verse 12, Paul says something extremely profound that ought to shape our entire understanding of how we understand 
ourselves in the church. Right? He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Right? See, you might almost uh, expect him to say the church, but he says, so it is with Christ. Right? He would not necessarily be wrong if he had said the church, but he says Christ. And he's using these words almost synonymously uh, to one another. When Paul is saying, uh, what Paul is saying here is that you are a member of the church because you are ultimately a member of Christ. And if you are a member of Christ, then you are a member of the church, right? The two go hand in hand, right? Because how did you become a member of Christ's body? Well, he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink in one spirit, right? So you became a part of the church that is Christ's body. At the same time, you became a Christian, right? It is the spirit of God who has unified you with Jesus as a member of his body, right? He has brought you into fellowship with himself as a member of his church, okay? You cannot be a part of Christ and not be a part of his body. You cannot be a part of Christ and not be a part of the church, okay? And that point right there, that ought to shape our whole understanding of church membership, okay? For some of us, that dichotomy might seem pretty self-evident, right? But for others of us, that foundational point is so necessary for us to hear, right? In our particular Christian culture, right, in Western Christianity, we can tend to highly esteem individual spirituality, right? We can tend to esteem uh, the individual experience, right? We make uh, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? We make that everything, but we can hold in utter skepticism any sort of commitments to institutions, right? And we, and we divorce the two as two separate categories, but what Paul is saying here is, no, these are one of the same, right? Your relationship with Jesus ought to also be expressed in your relationship with the church, okay? You might have a really wonderful uh, devote, right, personal devotional life, right? But if you do not have a flourishing church life, I don't know necessarily if we can say that you are spiritually healthy, right? That is disproportionate thinking, right? It's unbiblical thinking. It's illogical, right? You cannot say that you love the church but not love his body. So not to be uh, graphic by any means, but if I were to lose my hand, right, if it were to just be uh, cut off, what would happen to that hand, right? It would wither and it would rot. The body could be a could be okay. It would be weakened, but the hand would wither and rot. And maybe for some of us, we've spent time around people who have been cut off from the body, who have not spent time in the body. And we can start to notice. They can start to smell, right? They can start to, uh, their speech is critical, right? They only have toxic things to say about the church body. 
right? They might regard themselves as entirely self-sufficient, but when really they are a fish out of water. So to be united with Christ means to be united with his church, and the unity that we all share in Christ goes much deeper than any trite ideas of teamwork uh, or the sharing of the same cause, right? There's a tremendously deep and rich spiritual union and reality that we all share as members of the same body, and that's what Paul wants us to know here, that in Christ we have unity with one another. So there's unity, all right? So let's talk about uh, our second point. All right, so what does Paul want us to know here about identity? All right, well, let's look here in verse 14. It says, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. And if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do, do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that does not make it any less a part of the body. The body. All right, so what Paul wants the Corinthians to know uh, is that there is absolutely no particular gift that qualifies you as a member of the body, right? But it, that it is Jesus Christ alone who qualifies you and has given you an identity that goes deeper than anything you might be able to do or not do and goes deeper than anything that you might have or not have. See, in the church of Corinth, uh, it seems that there were uh, some people who were heralding certain gifts as evidences of faith, right? As if to say, oh, if you were a Christian, uh, well, then you must be able to speak in tongues, right? Uh, You must possess this gift if you want to be a part of us. And it seems that this was tremendously discouraging to some, right? For your membership with the church to be directly connected uh, to your own abilities and what it is that you are capable of, right? What an awful law that is. And what Paul is saying here is, no, it is Jesus Christ alone who has made you a part of the body, not your own utility, right? Jesus Christ alone is who has made you a part of, your church, of the church, not anything that you bring to the table, all right. And again, this is a foundational point, right? Because we might not necessarily do that to some degree, to the same extent, to one another, but we might do that to ourselves. Your identity in Christ is in no way connected to what you are able to do. It is only connected to Christ, right? There is the gospel, but we have a, tr- excuse me, but we have a tremendously hard time with that. Right? We can have a tremendously hard time swallowing that. We can very much want to qualify ourselves with our own abilities uh, and compare ourselves with our members uh, and their abilities. And when we fail, because we will fail, or when we compare and fall short, we begin to question our place in it all. All right, so um, a few months ago, uh, I went with Luke and Ethan Montgomery uh, to see the new Spider-Man uh, movie, Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, and I really uh, enjoyed this movie um, because it takes place with Spider-Man, right, and he's in high school, and he's actually played by a high school kid, right, not a 30-year-old who, who shaves, who's trying to, you know, act like a, like a high schooler. He's played by an actual 15-year-old kid, uh, and the overarching plot uh, 
within this story, uh, within this movie, is where Peter Parker, he's really trying to figure out what it means to be Spider-Man. All right? Who is Peter Parker and who is Spider-Man? Uh, and he has all these new abilities, right? And he, has, uh, and he very much wants to be a superhero, uh, but he has to go through this process to figure out what that means. And within this movie, uh, Tony Stark, right, who is also Iron Man, uh, he actually gives Peter Parker uh, his suit, right, Spider-Man suit. And the suit is awesome, right? does a lot more than like, just that. Um, and the suit... Uh, is wonderful, but Peter falls in love with the suit, right? The problem is in the movie, uh, Peter not only falls in love with the suit, but he's so eager uh, to become a superhero, so eager to prove himself to Tony Stark and to show that he's more capable of just fighting local crime that he actually gets caught up in something that, go- that is well beyond him, right? He bites off more than he can chew. Uh, and there's this scene where he's trying to catch these criminals. Sorry, that was a long buildup. <laughs> So there's this scene where he's trying to catch these criminals, uh, and he's trying to be the hero, right? But he actually ends up propagating the situation, uh, and he actually uh, causes more trouble, almost gets a lot of people killed, almost gets himself killed, and Iron Man has to step in uh, and save the day, right? There's this scene uh, where the two characters, right, they're on this rooftop, and Tony Stark, uh, he's actually taking the suit back, right? Uh, Peter was not responsible uh, with the suit, right? He did not listen uh, to Tony's uh, instructions, right? And so he doesn't get to keep it. And in this scene, uh, Peter is begging Tony to change his mind, right? He's saying, please uh, don't take the suit back. And he says, I am nothing without this suit, right? And Tony just very quickly replies, if you're nothing without this suit, then you should not wear it. You see, Peter's problem is that he was finding his identity in his own abilities, right? If, you don't, if I don't have this suit, then I'm nothing, right? If I can't be like Iron Man, then I'm nothing. If I can't be Spider-Man, then who am I? And how many of us wrestle with the same problem where we try to find our identity in our giftings and our, our abilities rather than in Christ, right? When your identity is not in Christ, then we are either prone to compare and idolize the giftings of others or we are prone to use our gifts simply just to prove our own worth and value. Right, but Paul wants us to know and rest assured of is that our position within the body, our new identity, right, that is our sense of significance, our sense of value, our sense of worth, our sense of self, right, our new identity should not rest on what we're capable of but only in Jesus who says who we are and who has intimately connected us to him in the church forever. Paul wants us to be confident of our identity in Christ so that we do not misuse or abuse our gifts within the church, which, uh, by the way, by looking at this passage, we could also qualify a lack of use, or that is not using your gifts at all as a misuse of a gift. So God has given us all gifts, not so that we will find our identity in them, but so that we will use them for the good of the body. And unless we have our identity sealed in Christ, we will misuse or or abuse or neglect those gifts, okay? But our identity is in Christ. All right, so now uh, on to our 
Third point, I'm running short on time. Uh, Paul wants you to be assured of your diversity within the church. All right, now this uh, point, it's very much an overarching uh, theme throughout the whole passage, and uh, the point is simply this, uh, that God has designed and gifted us in extraordinarily different ways for the greater benefit of the body. Okay, so each of us is uniquely and spiritually and naturally gifted in ways that differ from the gift of others. Right, we see that throughout the passage, but let's look at uh, verse 17. It says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would, be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, or many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so Paul's point here. Uh, is that the difference between you and I and all of us is not only a part of God's design, but ultimately works for our mutual benefit, right? In the words of Jack Johnson, we're always better when we're together, right? We have something, right? You have something that I do not have. I have something that you do not have. We need each other in order to thrive. That has That is how God has chosen to arrange his body in awesome diversity between members, right? And it's so necessary for us to understand our diversity so that we do not become afraid of it, but embrace it and deeply appreciate the uniqueness we all come to the table with, right? You see, uh, if you are afraid of diversity, right, which means that you really just want everyone to be the same, Right, which could also mean that you just really want everyone to be like you. Right? When we're afraid of diversity, when we think this way, it is dreadfully impossible for you to have any gratitude, appreciation, or respect for others in the church. Right? Maybe you are an acts of service person. Right? Maybe you love to fix things, or maybe you like to prepare uh, others a meal. Right? And that is an awesome gift. But when you hold that gift as ultimate to the others, then you might uh, most likely get frustrated with other members uh, who aren't serving in the same way that you're serving, right? And you will write them off as just simply lazy, right? Uh, Or, right, maybe you have a heart for the needy or for social justice, right? And to love, uh, and you love to volunteer your time for multiple causes, right? And that is a wonderful gift. That is a needed gift, right? Right? But if you hold that gift as ultimate, you might be prone to, th- uh, to thinking that others who do not share the same intensity as your heart, that they are cold-hearted and too self-involved, right? Or maybe you have the gift of knowledge, right? You love study, uh, you love theology, you love truth, uh, but others don't share that gift, right? Others don't know what you know, and you just don't understand why. And so instead of teaching your brothers and sisters, you tend to criticize, right? When we hold our gifts as superior to one another, when we hold our gifts as more ultimate than another, we can, be te- we can tend to criticize, we can be tend to write one another off. 
And we cannot appreciate others the way God has desired for us to do, right? Because we're only focused on others' deficiencies, okay? So God loves diversity, right? He has designed his church to function and to flourish in the throes of diversity, right? And we mustn't neglect our uniqueness or the uniqueness of others. All right, so now our last uh, point, right? And this is less uh, of something that Paul wants us to know, and this is something that Paul wants us to have, right? And that is a heart for the body, right? And this, uh, this last thing, it really comes uh, to us from the following chapter, uh, but we're going to disregard that chapter break for a second, all right, so let's look at where chapter 12 leaves off, starting verse 39. It says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have, a, have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? If we want to use our gifts effectively, if we want to truly be useful in the church and in a manner that pleases God, then we must have a heart of Christ in love, right? Our gifts are not for us, they are for others, right? And this love uh, is the spirit by which we have to steward our gifts, right? So Edmund uh, Clowney, he's this late um, theologian and pastor, right? I really appreciated how he summarized this for us. He says, the Lord has fashioned his church as an organic body. The gifts he grants are not given for their own sake, Their presence does not support pride or their absence justify envy. When the gifts are in any way detached from the fruit of the Spirit in the service of love, they become distracting noise, attracting attention, but accomplishing nothing. Right? How many things do we do throughout the day just simply to attract attention? Right? But love is the heart by which we must steward all of our gifts. And yet a sincere heart of love is the most difficult thing to possess and is impossible to possess without Christ. You know, and yet the funny thing is, is that uh, when we look back at the other uh, three previous points, um, the, right, those other things that Jesus wants us to know, it is only after truly understanding those things are we actually able to love freely, Right? Uh, because in order for us to be able to truly start to love as Christ did, we must first understand what has been done for us in the gospel, right? And that is that Jesus has united you to himself in his body for all eternity, right? That Jesus has given you an identity that is more rock solid than anything you could ever do and not rest on your performance. Right? And that Jesus has not only gifted you in unique ways, but has also given you all things in his church to sustain you. Right? It's only after we understand those things do we actually have the freedom to love one another as Christ did. Right? And so, um, so I got this book. Right? It's, called, uh, it's called Good and Angry. 
Uh, and the author's name is uh, David Pallison, right? And he's the direct executive director of CCEF and the senior editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Uh, and what prompted me to buy this book was this in-depth interview uh, that I heard with Pallison, uh, where he's discussing uh, some of the major themes of this book. Uh, and as I was listening to the interview, I thought Pallison said something extremely uh, profound, and I'll, and I'll close with this. He was talking uh, about what it actually uh, means, what it means to actually live with a faith instead of values that are reflected in the gospel, right? And as an example, uh, he considers a woman uh, who does not live for her appearance, right? She dresses appropriately, she dresses tastefully, uh, but she is not obsessed, right? And when she walks into a room, her mind doesn't immediately uh, become preoccupied by wondering uh, who is looking at her, right? Uh, she doesn't have the spotlight effect, right? Who's watching me? Who's judging me, right? But she is so convinced of who she is in Christ because of the gospel. When she walks into a room, she is free to think about others, right? Who is this lonely person uh, in the room, Right? Where is that old friend I haven't seen in a while? Right? Who's, who's new here in the church? Right? Who, who have I not had a conversation yet? Who have I not uh, tried to get to know yet? Right? There's a freedom about her. There's a joy and a kindness. There's a freedom from anxiety. Because of the gospel, she is now free to be present and to love others as Christ has loved her. And to use her gifts with a heart of, for others. All right, and that is what we all have in Jesus. Because he has given us a place in his body. He has given us a new identity in himself. And we have everything we need together to flourish. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for, the, for this uh, sermon series. Lord, and I pray that just as, uh, as we're, we're coming to the end, Lord, that... Um, as we've looked in your word um, and how it is that you define the church and how it is that you define family, that we would all uh, be prompted, uh, Lord, to be moved by uh, your spirit to, to reconsider our place um, here at King's Church, um, that we would uh, really begin to press in together, right, uh, how to love one another, that we would uh, rest in what it is that you've done for us uh, and, and live in that freedom. Uh, we love you, Lord Jesus. In your son's name, amen.